Now please turn in your Bibles to the prophecy of Malachi. We are in chapter 3, and we're going to finish chapter 3 this evening. Chapter 3, then, uh, verses 13 through 18. Malachi, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. That is the reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it now. Father, as we come to the Holy Scriptures and the proclamation of your word, we ask your blessing. We pray for the work of your spirit in us and that you'd encourage us, that you'd instruct us, that you'd build us up in our faith. And again, as always, we pray that you'd get glory for yourself and for your son, our Savior, through the ministry of the word. And we pray this in his name. Amen. When Satan came to our first parents, Adam and Eve, he sought to tempt them, uh, entice them to disobey God and eat that forbidden fruit. He tempted them with a notion that God was holding out on them. They were in this beautiful garden. They had everything they needed. Life literally was perfect for them. They had no lack of any good thing. Satan came along and tried to persuade them that there was more, that there was something better, and they believed him. They ate the fruit that God had said they shouldn't eat because Satan was able to convince them that they could get better, they could get something better by not doing what God said. In other words, he was telling them that it is vain to serve God, which is exactly what we see in verse 14 of our text. That's what the people were saying. They had concluded it is vain. In other words, it's unprofitable. There's no point. Uh, there's no profit. Uh, there's no, nothing to be gained by serving 
Yahweh. And since that's essentially, I mean, slightly different words, different scenario, of course, but basically the same thing, the same strategy Satan used in the garden with Adam and Eve, um, we could say it's the oldest trick in the book, in a sense. And so when we read in the New Testament, about Satan and how the, the scriptures say that we are not ignorant of his schemes. You know, that's one, this is one aspect of, of what we know of how he operates. God gives us his word, he gives us his commandments, he gives us instructions on in how to live, and then Satan comes along and says, no, 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 you're going about this the wrong way. And if you really want the good life, if you really want to prosper, don't obey God. It's vain to serve him. Now, people become disillusioned, even in our day, don't they? they? They become discouraged, they leave the church, they leave the faith, and if you ask them why, there may be nuances and variations in the excuses that they make, but it all comes down to verse 14. They become persuaded that it's vain to serve God. Well, this passage in Malachi's prophecy is the beginning, the, the, the first verses of, of chapter 4 are sort of a conclusion to this section, but we're stopping at the end of the chapter. This is the sixth, uh, what we call disputation. In other words, a case or an arraignment, an indictment that God brings to his people. It's the sixth disputation, and in it, on the one hand, God is rebuking those who are speaking against him, speaking harshly against him, but at the same time, in the closing verses of the chapter, there are words of strong comfort to those who truly fear the Lord, those who serve him, those who esteem his name. And we see in these verses that the Lord Jesus Christ will certainly vindicate all those who truly fear the Lord. That's the message of this passage here. The Lord Jesus Christ will certainly vindicate all those who truly fear the Lord. We're going to see that unbelief reaches a conclusion that to serve God is futile. We'll also see that God's servants unite for mutual encouragement, and then finally that God loves and cares for his children. So in the first place, unbelief concludes that serving God is futile, as I looked over this passage, and because of General Assembly and because I was gone last Lord's Day, it was not here last Lord's Day, you actually had a couple of weeks to really ruminate on this passage. And as I did, um, I was amazed in the first place by the patience of God. I was amazed by His grace that He would bear so patiently with obstinate people who have the audacity to say it is vain to serve God. Couldn't we justly expect God to wipe them out for saying such a thing? He would certainly be just to do that, but he bears with them. He's patient. He rebukes them and gives them opportunity to repent. It's amazing. I also, in God's providence, have been, in my own devotions, looking uh, recently, even in the midst of my preparation of this sermon, at Psalm 73. And in Psalm 73, the psalmist uh, 
kind of encounters the exact same argument or the exact same device of Satan, we might say, uh, as we find in, in Malachi 3, because uh, the psalmist says uh, he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he's watching the wicked. He's watching people who don't honor God, who don't esteem his name, don't fear him, don't serve him, and yet they've got everything they could possibly want. It's going well for them, in other words. And verse after verse, he's sort of rehearsing how good these people have it, and yet they don't love God, they don't serve him. And in verse 13 of Psalm 73, he says, something that's hauntingly similar to uh, Malachi 3. He said, all in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Now the psalmist comes to his senses shortly after that verse. He does it, by the way, as a result of entering into the place of worship. It's when he goes to worship God that he begins to see things correctly. Begins to see thing, he begins to see things in proper perspective. And that's, uh, that's a takeaway we're going to get from the text this evening as well. The importance of, of, of fellowship. The importance of worship. But the benefit that we get from the fellowship we have with one another in worship. So in Psalm 73 as well as here in Malachi uh, chapter 3, we're confronted with basic realities of life in a fallen world. Undeniable realities, among which are the following. Number one, the godly suffer. It happens. You know this. The godly suffer. And on the other hand, the wicked often prosper. Why is that? How can that be? But we should, we should modify, we should, we should qualify that statement. The wicked often prosper for the time being. That's key. The wicked prosper for the time being. They go about their lives testing God. They go about their lives provoking Him to wrath. They live in defiance of His law. And despite the fact that they live that way, they outwardly enjoy all the success that this world can bring. In other words, they do what they please and they seem to get away with it. Now, the perspective of unbelief is as follows. Unbelief observes those realities, the, the, the righteous suffer, the godly suffer, and the wicked often prosper. And what unbelief does is it reaches the conclusion that we see in verse 15 of the text. They call the arrogant blessed. You know, the people who really have it good are the, are the wicked. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And so unbelief sees that and reaches that conclusion that God, serving God is futile. But I want you to know, and I want to assure you, that that kind of perspective is short-sighted, 
That kind of perspective is faithless, and it dishonors God, and we must avoid taking on that perspective. You know, the psalmist in Psalm 73 confesses that that had been his perspective for a time. It's like a confession of sin almost. And then he says, Then I came to my senses when I went into the house of the Lord. But to say that serving God is vain and that the the wicked are blessed and and all that, it, it dishonors God because it denies and flatly contradicts God's own word. And when we have that perspective that's, that's kind of portrayed for us in the early part of Psalm 73 or that we see here in our text this evening, when we, if we take that position, if we take that attitude towards the phenomena around us, then that unmasks a materialistic spirit in us, doesn't it? A materialistic spirit that worships wealth and comfort rather than God. So if we come, if any of us come to the conclusion that serving God is futile, that's the conclusion of unbelief. That's what these opening verses of our text show us. As we go on through the text, however, we find uh, some really encouraging things. We see that God's servants unite for mutual encouragement. Look with me again at verse 16. Right on the heels of, of that, that statement that's so rife with unbelief, in verse 16 it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. See, in the midst of a culture of skepticism, a culture of unbelief, there were those who feared the Lord. Praise God. And in the midst of our culture of unbelief and skepticism, there are those who fear the Lord. What was the prevailing societal attitude? It was apathy, is materialism, as, is, as though uh, God's blessing were, were no deeper or no more substantial than material wealth. Apathy, materialism, selfishness, self-pity. And counter to that, some kept the faith. Some honored God. Some feared the Lord. Now the thing is, it can be very hard to keep the faith in the midst of unbelief. When you're surrounded by unbelief, it's hard sometimes to keep the faith. And that's one reason that Christian fellowship is so vital. We need each other. What do we get? What are the benefits of Christian fellowship? What are the benefits that we have one another here in this life, that we can be a family here in this congregation? Well, it's a remedy for that sense of isolation that we often get. It's a remedy for that aloneness that we sometimes feel. If you're in the workplace, if you're at school, wherever you might be, and you're just surrounded by unbelief, you start to feel like you're all by yourself. And if you have that feeling long enough, then you start to doubt. You start to think, what, am I crazy that I believe these things and nobody else seems to? 
But see, when we come together in fellowship and we're in, the, in a community, we're surrounded by people who believe our faith is encouraged and strengthened by that. So fellowship is a remedy for that sense of isolation. And it's in the context of fellowship that we encourage one another. Did you see what, they, what these people did? Verse 16, those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. They were conversing. They were talking about the Lord. They were talking about their faith. They were talking about what God has done for them and how he's helped them and how he's blessed them. They spoke to one another. They were building one another up as they did that. They were sharpening one another. You've heard the expression about safety in numbers. Well, there's a certain sense in which that's really true spiritually. There are no and can be no Lone Ranger Christians. It's not a mistake that people of faith are referred to as a household referred to as a family, referred to as a flock, or even a body. And maybe you've seen uh, television programs, National Geographic or something of that nature, and and seen videos of of how predators, for instance, in the... uh, in, in, in the African plains, predators will, will approach and prey on a, a herd of animals. Uh, you don't see predators usually, lions for instance, just charging into a, a, a herd of, of some kind of animals. What they do, the animals see the lions and they start to run. And the animal that usually is a goner is the one that separates from the group. So in the Christian life, it's the same way. If you go it alone, or presume to go it alone, you become easy prey for Satan. You become easy prey for the evil one. And it's not that he literally tears you apart like a lion. How does Satan tear apart your faith? How does he tear apart a Christian? He just uh, causes them to be deceived. Causes them to buy into false teaching. So seeds of doubt in their hearts that, that grow into skepticism. He uh, encourages them to pursue worldliness of various forms. And in the spirit realm, that's, that's essentially like that one animal separating a little bit from the herd and then becoming the target of the predator. See, for a branch to live, it has to, for, for a branch to live and for a branch to bear fruit, it has to abide in what? In the vine. It can't survive if it's broken off from the vine. For a lamb to be protected and to be fed, it has to remain with the shepherd. And to be with the shepherd means to be with the flock. So you see how God's servants unite for mutual encouragement. Because if seeds of doubt are being sown in you, your brothers and sisters can encourage you to be strong in the faith and to be steadfast. If you're being deceived, if you're kind of giving way to some kind of false doctrine, we protect one another in that way. We encourage one another. We correct one another. 
God's servants, those who truly serve him, unite for mutual encouragement. And it says, of these people, in verse 16, the Lord paid attention and heard them. They spoke to one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now, I think we can understand this in two ways, and they're not necessarily exclusive. We can, be, we can take it in both senses, I think. So this book of remembrance may have been an actual document that the people prepared and signed. Uh, at General Assembly last week, uh, those who attended were given the opportunity to take a, a facsimile, a, a photocopy of a signatory document that was signed by the founders of the PCA 50 years ago. The pastors, all, all those who were present, who were present at the formation of the Presbyterian Church in America, their names are signed on there. I recognize some of the names. Some of the people whose names are on there are still alive, still serving in the PCA. And what we're reading about here in, in Malachi could have been something like that. A group of people who had rejected the culture of unbelief around them and decided, we will serve the Lord, we will esteem his name highly, and they signed their names to this. And that, in, in that sense, it was this book of re remembrance, an expression of their commitment to the Lord, an expression of their unity. God's servants unite for mutual encouragement. And just, I want to throw in an early point of application here related to that. Before we move to the final point. One mark of a genuine Christian is that a genuine Christian wants to be with other Christians. Maybe you've met people who claim to be Christians, call themselves Christians, but they really prefer the company of the world. They might uh, reconsider. But one mark of a genuine Christian is that he or she wants to be with other Christians. Because we unite. We unite for worship, and that's our highest calling, of course. But we benefit from being together because we mutually encourage one another. Well, what we find at the end of this passage from Malachi is that God loves and cares for his children. And here's the other aspect of that book of remembrance that I said to the passage might be a reference to, and I don't think it's mutually exclusive with a, an actual document that the people prepared, because we read in Scripture about books, books that we don't see, books that don't exist in this, in this uh, tangible, physical world, books that God has. So this book of remembrance may express God's perfect record of his own. That's why I titled the sermon, He Knows His Own, because God keeps track. He sees. He takes note. And I think it's wonderfully encouraging that it says the people who feared the Lord spoke to one another, spoke to one another and the Lord paid attention. One commentator I read on this said, just as the Lord recounts the contemptuous blasphemies of the first group, the ones who say it's vain to serve the Lord, so he overhears the faithful, the faithful conversation of the second group. He hears and he's pleased by 
the encouraging words that you say to one another. He hears and is pleased by the things that you say to one another to build one another up. That's one of the lessons from all those genealogies in Scripture. Let me encourage you, when you're doing your Bible reading, especially if you're reading a Bible plan, Bible reading plan, and you come across a genealogy, I know you think, you know, I'd much rather read a psalm or one of Paul's epistles than all these names that I can't pronounce. One of the lessons from all those genealogies is that God keeps track. He doesn't lose sight of any of his people. He knows you by name. He doesn't forget. Now it says in Revelation 20, with reference to the final judgment, at the final judgment, when the sea gives up the dead that are in it and the grave gives up all the dead, everyone appears before the Lord God. It says books were opened. That's what John saw in his vision. He says books were opened. I think those books refer to an account of our lives. My history, your history, everybody's history, from the beginning of our lives to the end. But it also speaks of a special book. Right there in that same verse in Revelation 20, it says the books were opened, and it says there's another book. It's called the Book of Life. In several other places, that same book is referred to, and it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. God keeps track. And he says something very special about verse 16's book of remembrance. He said, of those who are written in it, in verse 17 he says, they shall be mine. He goes on to say, when they will be his. He says, in the day, verse 17, in the day that I make up my my treasured possession, That title, My Treasured Possession, that's a special title God used for Israel. He used it in Exodus 19, verse 5. Israel's at the foot of Mount Sinai. God is about to enter into covenant with them as they become a nation. He's going to soon bring them into the promised land. And he says to them in Exodus 19, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. So you've got that expression, my treasured possession, here in Malachi that we saw all the way back in Exodus when Israel was first being formed as a a people, as a nation. And you see the same thing in Psalm 135, verse 4. The Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. But you know what? The exact same title is used in the New Testament of Christians. The exact same title is used of the church in the New Testament. In Titus chapter 2, 13 and 14, it speaks of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Or in 1 Peter 2, 9. Read 1 Peter 2, because 1 Peter 2 uses the same language that God used of the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai to speak of you, to speak of his church, his New Testament community, because it is the fulfillment. And so, writing to Christians, 
Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So Yahweh's treasured possession, treasured possession of the Lord is, who are they? They're his elect from every nation, Jew and Gentile. And because he treasures them, because he treasures us, the text says he will spare us. He will spare them. And that term spare can also mean to have pity upon, and both senses apply, because God loves his children. He, ta- he cares for his children. And in the final verse of the text, it says, then, in other words, when the sons of God are revealed, he says, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. The people were frustrated. And their frustration was leading them into unbelief because they they thought the wicked were prospering, that that meant God loved them, and somehow they they were blessed. God says, you'll see. It'll all come clean in the end. You shall see. No longer will there be any confusion. There will be no more doubt about upon whom God's favor rests. We just can't see it with the eyes of flesh right now sometimes. So imagine the comparison or the the contrast between a successful person who's got all kinds of wealth, all kinds of possessions, lives a life of comfort, and he's healthy. And compare that with somebody who's maybe a a political prisoner in the gulag in Siberia somewhere, imprisoned, consigned to that suffering because of their faith, or somewhere in North Korea, a Christian locked away, suffering, freezing, starving. And if you had to look at those two pictures, which one would you say is wicked? Which one do you say is righteous? Which one serves God, would you guess? Which one does God cherish? Well, the answer is, we don't always know, but God always does. Psalm thirty-three, eighteen: Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope, those who hope in his steadfast love. So the day is coming when it's all going to be very clear. There won't be any more doubt. You shall see the distinction, God says. Christ, when he comes, the glory of all all his holy angels, he's going to separate the people like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then everyone will see that no one who serves God serves him in vain. So in conclusion, remember, God's servants unite for mutual encouragement. Listen to this very carefully. You can be in the visible church and yet not be in the faith, but not vice versa. 
If you're truly in the faith, you need to be in a local, visible expression of the body of Christ. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So it's possible for someone to be in the visible church and not truly be in the faith. But if someone is truly in the faith, they must be and need to be in the visible church. We need one another, brothers and sisters. And also remember, God loves and cares for his children. Nobody can fool God. He sees hearts. He knows who are his. God knows who loves him. God knows who serves him. He sees right through hypocrites. And he knows who is the real deal. You know, and the reason, one of the reasons he can know that is because he chooses us. It's one of the beauties of the doctrine of div- divine election. God chose us from the foundation of the world. He has loved us with an everlasting love. He knows who are his. And he's got something very special for those who serve him, for those who fear him. And I know you know that there's a, there's a mansion of glory awaiting you in, in, in eternity. I know you know that you'll have a place in the new Jerusalem, in the holy city, in the life to come. But God has something really special for you here and now. And we're going to celebrate it together now. He has a special gift, and it's the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's communion with him through the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is a special gift he gives to those who serve him, those who esteem his name. And we're going to enjoy that together now as we remember the death of the one who came to take away our sins. So let's pray, and then we're going to sing. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that through him we can have communion with you. And as we come to the table now, Lord, we pray that you will refresh and encourage our spirits and strengthen our faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.